If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Picture a library and what do you see? Is it a local reading room full of beanbags and outdated computer desks? Or perhaps a more lavish, ornamental collection of a grand palace or university? Well, in their new book, The Library of Fragile History, Andrew Pettigree and Arthur de Verdeven chart the rich and ever-changing history of book collecting, discussing libraries great and small. Emily Bruffett spoke to them to find out more. And the first person you'll hear after Emily is Andrew. Hello to you, Andrew and Arthur. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you both today. Very happy to be here. Hi, Emily. Thanks. So today we are going to be talking about your new book, The Library of Fragile History. I wanted to start by asking you, what was your reason for writing this? What's so significant about studying the library over over time? Well, I think we wanted to write this because uh, we've worked together before on different projects and we found ourselves increasingly drawn to the history of book collecting as the centre of our work. Uh, We've done a book on the book culture of the Dutch Republic in the 17th century and we'd found libraries and particularly personal collections were absolutely at the heart of this story 
and re- really mobilizing and, and, and powering the book industry. So I think we said to ourselves, hold on, why has this story never been told? Because if you are looking for the archetypal library history, you'll find it's called something like the 100 most beautiful libraries in the world or the destruction of libraries. It's about one thing or the other. It's either about great beauty or great loss. So we wanted to tell the everyday story of how the library movement changes in the 2,000 years since the Great Library of Alexandria. And it's that that was what started us off on this, what's for us been a very exciting trail. Yes, and what, what made this uh, writing this book so enjoyable was, was the sheer diversity we encountered in the library world. Like Andrew says, so often it's a story of, of great buildings and, and great collections. And of course, there are many that do appear in our book. Um, but it, this is not just a story of great national libraries or, or fantastic university collections like the Bodleian in Oxford. It's also a story of, uh, of personal collecting. It's a story of small parish libraries, often founded by pious bequests from book collectors who wish to be memorialized for the future and leave a legacy through their collecting. It's a story of uh, commercial ventures, like circulating libraries run by booksellers um, where people could um, could borrow fiction, which in the 18th and 19th centuries, when these libraries first came on the scene, uh, was rarely accessioned by libraries. So we have a really rich array of, of different libraries that come into our story. And the other major theme we wanted to address, and the reason why we called it uh, a fragile history in the subtitle is because um, we recognize that you know most libraries aren't there to last the concept of the library is a very human one and one that we see reappearing with every generation every generation wishes to make the library in their own image and to stock it with the books that they value or that they wish to uh, to read but you know most libraries that have existed through human history are no longer with us. And the ones that are still here are really rare surviving um, examples. And so it's this, um, the natural fragility, uh, the the cycle of building up, uh, decline, dispersal and reconstruction. That's really what stands at the heart of our history of the library. When do we first start to see evidence of libraries existing in the historical record? The first evidence we have of, of book collecting in libraries, I mean, it goes all the way back to the to the Theodorans origins of literature and really the written um, uh, the written text. So we're looking here already at the ancient Babylonian and Assyrian empires, libraries being constructed with clay tablets, um, and thereafter uh, through uh, papyrus scrolls, indeed. And that's of, often uh, what many people will will know uh, so- something about. This is, of course, the Lost Library of Alexandria, uh, which really throughout the library history story, other collectors and library builders have always looked to. Not that we necessarily know all that much about it, and indeed we should be careful that there's a lot of myth involved uh, in this great library. But even today we still see people harking back to these earliest library models. I mean, if you think of of Google's great ambitions with digitizing books, or indeed uh, Amazon's Alexa. Uh, It's not called Alexa for any reason, it's named after Alexandria. So, you know, so the library goes back a long way, and I think we 
can see in its earliest iterations, most of all, that libraries were meant as uh, archival storehouses. Uh, organizing uh, and, and keeping information was, for, of course, for um, uh, Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian rulers was the, the first motivation. And out of that, we slowly start to see a, a movement of growth that prioritizes scholarly collections and the library as a storehouse, not just of administrative information, but also of, of what you might call scholarly wisdom. I think it's important to 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 add, Emily, that um, for us, uh, we're very generous in our definition of what constitutes a library. For for us, a library is any collection of texts purposefully assembled. So it was quite possible um, in the 14th or 15th century when a manuscript library, before the invention of printing, might be five, ten, fifteen treasured books. But now, of course, so the library that uh, uh, the office I'm sitting in has a library. The the room you're sitting in, I see, has a library. <laughs> and so it's the collection which makes a library, not the building. And this is the absolutely critical point, I think, which suffuses our study, that libraries come and go, they're assembled, they're cherished, and then they're dispersed. Libraries, on the whole, don't last very long, partly because of the one critical fact which dominates library history is that no library is as precious to anyone beyond its first creator. So the emotional baggage that suffuses our libraries, our memories of where we found a book, how we collected them, how long we were looking for them. That has been a constant through through history. Whereas the buildings can quite easily become empty shells because they don't have these personal connections. And it's very interesting if you look through a book of the 100 Most Beautiful Libraries, how few how how few uh, reading desks there are in these places, how little um, uh, facility they make for actually sitting and reading any of the books. It's the building that's the star, not the books. And we've tried to write a a, a book in which it's the books that are the star, not the buildings. Throughout the course of history, then, have we come to value books more or less? I think we've come to value books differently in that we now uh, think nothing of having several hundred or, or, or several thousand books in a collection. Going back to the first days when books were uh, papyrus scrolls, uh, then in those days um, the medium papyrus, which is a form of reed found on the in the Nile Delta, the medium was actually quite cheap. But the sort of people who could afford an enslaved scribe to copy out the texts for them was inevitably only from the very highest levels of society. And that's what really characterizes the ownership of books right through to the invention of printing that the privilege of owning books is one confined to the very rich. And this is even though we see one of the, the first great medium shift when you move from papyri, uh, which are very susceptible to damp and where the raw material is only available in a very restricted area, 
to parchment, which is a medium that makes use of uh, animal skins. And of course, animals are fairly ubiquitous, so you can have manufacture in um, all over Europe. In fact, my wife and I came across a papyrus factory up in Rothshire in uh, northern uh, Scotland when we were on holiday this year, dating from the 8th or 9th century, which is an absolutely extraordinary piece of archaeology which we went, went to see. But, of course, it's more expensive medium. It's a very good medium, but it, it, it is expensive. Uh, and then, of course, we come to paper. And it's only in the paper era that the chance of collecting can move down the social scale with, first of all, people like lawyers and uh, doctors and church ministers being able to put together collections of several hundred books, which a century before, in the manuscript era, would have been a royal collection. Mm. Yes, and so, like Andrew has, has just said, you know, modes of production um, in in the book world are incredibly important to shaping libraries and shaping um, shaping book collections. But it's also, of course, you know, what people use those books for. And for much when when the invention of printing came along in the 15th century, this was a a real sort of boon to to professional uh, people like uh, uh, scholars and and lawyers and doctors because they could they had this sense. So they could access so many more texts. They could begin to fill their houses with texts that could sit on their shelves that they could enjoy. This also meant, of course, that, that the great collectors of the manuscript era, dukes and princes who previously had this almost a near monopoly on building great libraries, all of a sudden felt that their efforts were, were being outdone by um, you know, lowly lawyers and merchants living in the same town. So this also meant that to them, the concept of the library uh, deteriorated as an, as an uh, elite object. So instead, you know, they turn to collecting uh, very fine paintings or tapestries or, you know, gathering together a zoo of exotic animals. Uh, that was a fine alternative to busying yourself with all these books that all of a sudden everyone could, could access. And this issue of building or acquiring books for text versus uh, an element of, of, of display, and whether that is for princely luster or indeed for, for scholarly display, um, that persists. And indeed, if we think to another key factor in the um, in, in, in change in, in book production and book supply in, in the 19th century, when we come onto the uh, to the steam presses and the industrial presses that allow for the production of so many more quantities of of books. Um, and at the same time, there are immense advances in mass literacy. There is a whole new market out there for uh, for texts, but. Just because you are literate and you enjoy literature doesn't mean you wish to build a library. And so much of the literature that was being enjoyed in the 19th century, uh, newspapers, uh, journals, uh, what they called the penny dreadfuls, very cheap uh, thrillers or westerns or, or romances uh, that were being enjoyed by this great new readership, you know, they didn't make it into many public libraries, um, partially because they were more ephemeral than many great leather-bound books, but also because there was a sense of these were not the types of print that are proper to sit on the shelves of a library. And this too goes back, if we, if we think of, of Thomas Botley, the great founder of the Botley Library in Oxford, um, he did um, so much for the development of library culture, yet he also said that he didn't want uh, idle books and riffraffs in his library, by which, in the early 17th century, he meant books in English. I want to say a word about shelves since the issue has come 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 up because we think of shelving 
as the absolutely obvious way of keeping books. And yet this isn't really um, anything more than an experimental technology when printing is inventing and invented in the 15th century. To this point, books had largely been kept in chests. And you kept your books, because they were valuable, in these chests with your other valuables, the um, contracts and charters and your ledger. So they were all in the chest together. And with a collection of 30 or 50 books, that that, that was a very sensible method of storage. But this becomes impossible when people are having private collections um, of three or 500 books. Though chests don't go out of fashion immediately. The English philosopher John Locke, for instance, who um, went and set up his home in the House of Friends, who were perhaps a little bit unwilling to give him the idea of permanence. So his books remained in chests, um, and they didn't build him any shelves. But now, of course, the building of shelves can be much more expensive than the accumulation of books. If if you if if, if you built shelves in any ones of, of your rooms recently, you can see how eye-wateringly expensive this 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 can be. And indeed, I mean, if we if we go to some of those, if we go back to the beginning when Andrew was mentioning, you know, the world's most beautiful libraries, many libraries on that list will be great 18th century Baroque libraries in, in Germany, in Austria, in uh, in the modern Czech Republic, that were all entirely renovated and revitalized in the 18th century. Um, but often here, indeed, it was more about making the shelves look beautiful rather than thinking about what books to place on them. And we know of instances, for example, of a, a monastery that had its entire book collection rebound in white vellum so that it would fit the new color scheme. And in, indeed, um, other libraries that had this beautiful, um, uh, you know, frescoed, uh, decorated uh, Baroque library, lots of hues of pink and blue and white. Um, and then they found out that they had about uh, a quantity of books to fill about a tenth of the new library space. So it built a far greater library hall than what they actually um, actually owned. So this issue of, you know, people often uh, complain online these days of, um, you know, trends of uh, color-coded libraries. Libraries, and you know you can get interior design experts these days to to create yourself a library. But this is something we've always been doing. It's just the, the latest iteration of that trend. So I wanted to bring you back to the kind of the point of book collection. How has what has been chosen to be included within libraries? How has that changed over time? Obviously, there's an element of personal preference there. But could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I mean, in the in the first age of print, collecting was still a serious business. Books were were now very much more available, but um, they were still expensive. They were still a considered expenditure. So, for instance, the the the, book, the libraries of ministers of the church or professors tended to be theological. The libraries of lawyers tended to have a working collection of law books. Uh, and the books of doctors would, generally speaking, um, be um, books of medicine, and often Latin medicine in those days. And what you'll notice here is that the main collecting um, uh, focus of this era is the old medieval faculties of the universities. In other words, we're still, to some extent, working within a structure of medieval 
learning. Now, it's perfectly possible that these collecting gentlemen and their families uh, bought a few other books, uh, but there actually wasn't that much recreational literature available in the first age of print. Some history, some poetry, a few medieval romances, but fiction really only comes into its own in the 18th century. And that's the real transformation which leads to the extraordinary expanse of personal collections, and that is fiction. And that only comes with a leisure society. You have to have time on your hands to be able to settle down with, with a nice book. Well, that transforms the market, but it also transforms the institutional library because the traditional institutional libraries have no place for fiction. University collections are too serious. And actually, when the public libraries come along, they recognize a place for fr- fiction, but they're very censorious about the sort of fiction that they, they'll be having. As Arthur said, no westerns, no blood and thunder, no gruesome murders. It must all be... In t- the public libraries were intended to educate the newly uh, empowered working-class industrial populations and to equip them for their role as participants in democracies. Therefore, public libraries bought with public money should be serious places. Now, of course, that actually didn't suit their imagined patrons all that well. So you have a totally separate structure of libraries to cater for people who want to read for recreation. Uh, These include some uh, things known as the tuppany libraries. This might be the corner shop where you'd go around and buy a packet of cigarettes, but you'd also take away a book for tuppence, which you'd bring back next week. And if I was to tell you that until 1964, Boots the Chemist had a whole network of borrowing libraries as well, uh, very, there's no sign of it now, sadly, but um, very, you know these were highly successful organizations uh, and appealed to a certain strata of the population who didn't necessarily want to go to the public library, I think partly because they didn't want to meet their own housemaid or cook when they went, but they wanted to make their, their own choices discreetly in a sort of privileged space. So they'd go to Boots, they'd choose their book, And then the dust jacket would be removed before you took it away so that the casual observer seeing it on your bedroom table would not necessarily know what you were reading. So all of these uh, sort of social hierarchies feed into the the history of collecting in a rather remarkable way. And I think as, as all these examples indicate, it just also shows you how political libraries are and that libraries have always been a political space because deciding if you're going to have a collection that's communal in any sort of way, that it's not just for um, your own enjoyment, that of your family, maybe close friends, you have to consider uh, what books do I put in this library um, and who do, who do I want to let in? And this um, this has always troubled the library and indeed often has caused 
caused the demise of institutional collections. We see this um, very well with the emergence of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century that leads to the, the, the dissolution and dispersal of many uh, monastic libraries, of university libraries, of city libraries, because they these are being cleansed of Catholic books. But the Protestants, of course, were great library builders themselves. And when their libraries were taken by Catholic forces, the, the reverse happened. Um, one of the most fantastical libraries of the 16th and 17th centuries was the great ducal library at Heidelberg in Germany, uh, the Bibliotheca Palatina, which was uh, when Heidelberg was captured in the early 1620s. The entire library was carted off to the Vatican, uh, centered by the Duke of Bavaria who had conquered the town as this sort of immense procession to say, look, we've taken this um, Sebastian of, of heretics and uh, we're now sending you all their books so you can uh, pick what you like and these books can't be used anymore by the, by the Calvinists. And the Protestants did exactly the same. Um, the, the Swedish, uh, Lutheran Swedish Empire in the 17th century, whenever it, um, it marched into a town, there were specific uh, commissars there uh, whose first job was to find out what libraries were in the town and then to find all the books, create them up and ship them back to Sweden, where they would be neatly distributed among Swedish libraries. And that also makes the point that once, um, you know, sort of confessional boundaries in Europe had solidified, there was a sense that uh, libraries sh should have books that don't, um, that don't agree with your creed or confession, but you should, of course, restrict access to them. So in the great university library of Uppsala, uh, there were two uh, library halls in the same building. Both, um, you could only enter them from separate doors. And in one of them, you found all the good Lutheran books. Now, this was more easily accessible to the academic community. And the other one had all the Catholic and Calvinist books and was kept under strict uh, lock and key. And this, of course, you know, we, we may think, oh, you know, this is the 16th, 17th century. It's a, it's a long, uh, long time ago. But these same debates um, have, um, have ripped through the library world in the, in the 20th century uh, with the rise of totalitarian regimes, uh, indeed with, the, uh, with McCarthyism in the, in the United States after the Second World War, the, the, uh, the Cold War divide. Uh, we've seen it with uh, segregation in, in American public libraries uh, in the Jim Crow South. So, questions of who should be allowed into a library and this idea that you know we like to cherish this ideal that modern public libraries are there for everyone and should cater to all kinds of diverse literary tastes it's actually often quite difficult to put that into practice and not um, not cause offense or not attract some sort of criticism of um, how we should be regulating our libraries <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But one of the interesting things that our researchers revealed is that um, the books which survive in libraries through the centuries are not necessarily the books which had most influence at the time. Because the, the, the books which were most widely owned and most eagerly read were often quite cheap. <laughs> We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. 
It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about what challenges modern libraries face in doing this? Well, I think the first challenge that uh, libraries face and feel is, is, a, is a crisis of relevance. Now that we are all collectors... It's very hard for a library to keep up with this. The, the great age of the, li- of the public library actually is vanishingly small. If you think of um, its uh, functioning, uh, flourishing goes from about 1885 to 1965. And since that point, the public libraries always face challenges. And the biggest of those challenges is, is the paperback. Um, paperbacks uh, became very common uh, from about 1935 onwards with the foundation of Penguin Books. And these were offering books for sixpence, which was the price of a packet of 20 cigarettes, whereas the new hardbacks would cost about 15 times that much. So instead of going along to the public library, waiting in line, getting yourself on a waiting list for the latest novel you could go to the bookshop and buy a handful of, of, of penguins. And what, of course, Alan Lane, the, 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 the founder of Penguin, never really anticipated was that penguins would become collectible. He thought of them very much as um, disposable books. Read it, pass it on to a friend. And indeed, some of the early penguins from the wartime have the notice in, when you have finished this book, please take it to a local post office where it will be handed over to a soldier in our fighting forces. And it was anticipated that a a book of that sort would never come back for the front. It would simply be discarded. Well, what we know is that uh, penguins, because of their careful colour coding and their lovely uniforms and the jaunty penguin symbols, they became collectible very early and public libraries really struggled to keep up with this. Um, eventually, they sort of made their peace with paperbacks. If you go into a branch library now, you'll find that romances, Mills and Boone or Harley Quinn, will make up quite a lot of the stock because they, their most valuable customers in, ter- in terms of loyalty 
are, are, are people who read romances. But the problem is that most of the people who value libraries as cultural in, in institutions don't use them. Uh, and when we've taught, we taught when we were preparing this book to a lot of people who were uh, campaigning to retain li libraries threatened with closure in, in mostly in our cities. And when we asked them, it, did they use the libraries themselves? They very often say, no, they didn't, but they thought they should be preserved for other people. But the other people tend to use libraries for totally different purposes now. They want to use the computers there. They want to read the newspapers. They want to use the children's libraries for their, their small children, and they want to keep out of the cold. Now, all of those are very important social services, and branch librarians spend a lot of their working time now helping people on computers through difficult forms, like claiming universal credit. But it... It means that the space for books diminishes. The more computers you have, the more meeting space you put in, the more less room there is. And then, of course, there's also the challenge of, uh, of digital, which is just one more thing that they have to cope with. But I'll let Arthur talk, talk about that. No, it's, I mean, one of the, the great challenges is, is a challenge that has always faced uh, public or institutional libraries. And in a way, it's, it's, they struggle quite a bit, actually, in societies that have an abundance of books, where it's very easy for people to access literature. And, you know, this day and age, and certainly with digital resources, we're all so used to being able to access almost everything. There is such a diverse world of, of literature out there um, that it's very difficult to, to have a public library that offers that same diversity, that same breadth to every single person who comes through the door. And I think that is a real challenge for librarians in trying to decide, you know, what, what, what do our, our most valued users want? Um, and also this, this issue of, um, of, of novelty. You know, we, we're so gripped as a society by new things, by new sensations that come onto the market. So when there's a new bestseller or the new installment by a great author, um, we all want to have that at the same time. But public libraries really struggle to function that way because if they uh, only take one copy, then there will be a, a great waiting list for, for months and months for it. But if they buy 100 copies and everyone uh, will borrow one, the books are then returned and they're left with 100 copies they need to store somewhere. Uh, well, everyone's already read the new great bestseller. And this is something we, we see in a lot of um, smaller branch libraries in the UK, that you know, the, the browsable stock that they have on offer in the library is often very small compared to what you may find in, uh, in a bookshop. And indeed, here, here in St Andrews, our, our local public uh, branch library has about 2,000 volumes uh, uh, that you can browse. Our local bookshop has 30,000. So this... and you know, this key experience of browsing is, I think, what so many people enjoy about libraries and indeed what they enjoy about bookshops, because it allows them to find something new, something they hadn't expected, something they didn't know they wanted. And this is also the reason why bookshops are doing so well at the moment, uh, is because we cannot truly recreate this experience online. 
you know, we we all use digital technologies to access text and and rapidly um, extract things, uh, extract information, and that's great. That's that's a real bonus. But it's also the reason why uh, the internet or, or digital resources will not replace physical bookshops or the physical book, and I think also not the physical library. But the key thing is, you do need books for a library to be a library. All the services that the public library today provides, as Andrew just just outlined, are are great services and they play an important part in uh, modern society. But if you take the books away, you're left with another branch of the social services, not a library. And I think balancing that will be a big challenge. Yes, I think the, the key problem facing the library today is anticipating the taste of the future. Um, that that's particularly difficult for libraries because to some extent they recognise a, a, a sort of role as the community's collective memory. So they do keep stuff which is not, um, not desired every day, but nevertheless, if they don't keep it, who will? And so there is a sort of necessity for that sort of historical role. But the problem is that all prediction about the future is wrong. I mean, I wrote a book about the transition from manuscript to print, um, the book in the Renaissance. And the thing that I I actually wrote that when we were going through this transition from print to digital. And the the thing that really struck me was that the the boosters of print, the people who were saying, oh, this is a marvellous new invention, if they'd known what would have become of it, they wouldn't have been boosting it in the first place. And in the same way, the people who were say, uh, saying digital, this is the most fabulous invention, they didn't anticipate online gambling would become one of the growth industries of the digital age. Uh, why should they? But I don't think they'd have liked the idea. So the trouble is we've not only got these problems of not knowing what the future holds, but the, the acceleration of of new technology with every era all these changes go go faster and so what's the library to do in the great national libraries they're spending an awful lot of time thinking about how we can archive um, the inventions of the present how are we going to archive digital culture how are we going to know what to save of the millions and billions of tweets that uh, happen every day. But the problem is, um, it's very easy for tomorrow's technology uh, not to last. Uh, We've now been predicting, or people have been predicting, the death of the book now for the best part of a a century. But the things which were to um, nudge it out of the way, like uh, microfilm or the CD-ROM, um, they've both of them come and gone, and the book sails on. So there's a great danger, particularly at the upper echelons of the library profession, of trying to embrace the future too radically and finding out that you've embraced the wrong future. What can your research, what can that tell us about the general feeling towards reading and the ownership of books throughout history? Um, I think through, throughout history, uh, books have been valued. Um, and in fact, in many er- eras of history, enormously valued. Some households would have only a single book 
And it was often a, a secular prayer book called, called a book of hours. And that would never go into the chest or it never go onto a shelf because it would be consulted every day. It, it played a very important part in, in people's lives. Um, when collecting became something which you could aspire to many, many books, um, books would be an important symbol of your status in society. Um, I sit in my office and my students visit, and they always do me the credit of imagining that I've read all of the books in my, my, my office. And I never disabuse them of this because it's such, uh, it's such a very, it gives me authority uh, before I even open my mouth. But one of the interesting things that our researchers revealed is that um, the books which survive in libraries through the centuries are not necessarily the books which had most influence at the time. Because the, the, the books which were most widely owned and most eagerly read were often quite cheap. Um, they were read intensively and they were read to destruction. So they survived from far less well uh, rather than the sort of large tomes which were used for consultation, not reading. So the library remains um, that we have can sometimes give a rather misleading impression of the societies they came from. I think that's our major research uh, contribution. Here at St Andrews, we spend a lot of time trying to reconstruct the totality of the book world. And that means finding references in contemporary documents or uh, auction catalogues, finding references to books of which there's not a single copy left in a library, but we know that because it was being published or it was being sold, that it actually existed. So this search for lost books, lost because we can't find them in any library, but we know they existed, that has been the cornerstone of, of, of the research contribution that uh, we've, we've added to this book. I think one of the other things you you really see in our in our in our history of libraries and collecting is that there is a, a general trend we've gone through, especially in in over the last sort of five centuries, from a, a model of of intensive reading, as Andrew said. You know, many people would only if they had books would only have a few books. They would go to the same texts over and over again, and indeed, in the very earliest uh, Christian monasteries, um, to, to read scripture and indeed also to copy scripture as an act of book production. Uh, is a spiritual act. And in being engrossed in a single text is a really important aspect of engaging with literature. And as more books um, are published, as books become easier to produce, and as uh, literacy uh, rates increase, I think we have gone to a model of much more um, uh, discursive, broad reading, dipping in and out of particular texts. And that has also necessarily come with the, the ability for so many more people to own a great variety of books. Um, if, you, if you can only own 10 books, you may make very considered purchases of what books you want to have in, in your house. Um, and I think that's also a reason why we see that, um, you know, so many personal collections through history haven't survived because the people inheriting them, uh, uh, um, a widow or uh, children, family, heirs, um, you know, they haven't got the space for all these other books. They want to make a careful uh, decision about what to have in their own home. 
But when books become much cheaper, um, many people can afford uh, more books. So they fill their homes with them uh, and are always running out of space. Um, now, of course, you can see this as a sort of degeneration of saying, you know, we're not, we're not being, uh, we're not enjoying text as much, we're not concentrating enough. And certainly, you know, the digital inventions have made attention spans, I think, uh, much less. Uh, because information seems so much more fleeting and instantly accessible, why do we need to remember as much? On the other hand, I see that you know this um, greater access uh, of books, uh, both in libraries, on the, online, in personal homes, is also a good thing. And I'm reminded here of um, um, of the great Italian uh, philosopher and writer Umberto Eco, who, who died a few years ago. Um, very famous for writing uh, The Name of the Rose, great uh, great thriller set, of course, in a library uh, in uh, medieval uh, Italy. Um, but Echo himself had a, had a wonderful personal library, tens of thousands of books. In one interview late in his life, he said, one of the things that everyone always asks me when they come to my house, they say, you know, wow, look at this library. Have you read all these books? And he says, I, I, he always hated this question because he would always say, no, of course I haven't. Well, who do you think I am? I haven't read 40,000 books, but I have them because it means that when I walk to my kitchen or to my living room, all of a sudden my eye falls upon something and then I take it off the shelf uh, and dip into it. And that's how I do my research. That's how I get new ideas. So I think there is a, a, a lot to be enjoyed about having lots of books on your shelves that you haven't read yet. Perhaps never will, but the possibility is there. And I think that's something to be cherished. Yes, there are still, I think, uh, limited laboratories of the intensive reading that Arthur is describing. And and that is uh, Prisoner of War Camps is one very good example. Um, between 1939 and 1945, uh, many very active young people uh, found themselves in a prolonged period of incarceration um, in prisoner of war camps in the case of British and Commonwealth and American uh, prisoners in Germany. Um, and many of them turned to reading for the first time, uh, read very widely, uh, read enormous numbers of books, and some would come back and feel that their um, life had been transformed. And had they not been made a prisoner of war, they would never have undertaken a reading program of that of that type, but I think Arthur is right in the, in the hurry of our current lives. Those forms of intensive reader are very much rarer, and I think the sort of experience of intensive reading Arthur has described from the first stage of collecting, you see much more now in the way people rewatch films. Certainly, the way my children used to rewatch films, they 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 could take pleasure from any ten minutes anywhere along a film that they knew very well and watch it over and over again. And I honestly don't think many people reread books to the same extent that they now rewatch films. So, in a way, the focus of that sort of, uh, if you like, comfort culture has shifted. When, when we're talking about the future of the libraries, uh, there's a lot of doomsday scenarios. In fact, there was one uh, rather good-natured piece of futurology called the Extinction Timetable, which in 2007 um, forecast that the last public library would close its doors in 2019. 
That's a very good example of the danger of prophecy, because here we are uh, well past 2019, and there are still 2.6 million libraries around the world. And of those, 400,000 are public libraries. And it's also worth saying that while we uh, struggle and worry and argue about the future of public libraries in the West, in the global South, libraries are booming. So we're in a very strange situation that where we face these technological challenges, we face uh, worries about redundancy, the cost of keeping a library service open. In, in other parts of the world, libraries are, are growing and um, more popular than ever before. So who knows? Perhaps in 10 years' time, we'll be able to say how the story ended. But I doubt it. I doubt it. I think the story of the libraries will continue to develop and fascinate for many years to come. That was Andrew Pettigree and Arthur de Verdeven. Their book, The Library, A Fragile History, is out now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.